Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 3. We'll start at verse 21. We'll be reading through Luke chapter 4, verse 13. This is on page 1563 in your pew Bible. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Chresa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nehor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Last hour when he got done reading the, um, the genealogy, people just burst into applause. <laughs> so he got, uh, Femi got nominated to be an elder this year, and so we, I was trying to come up with an appropriate hazing, so that was the best I could come up with. <laughs> Made him read the longest genealogy in the New Testament. Okay, um, yeah. So, I was talking to the kids at the Christian school this week, the, the junior high kids, and I said, hey, uh, if I told you I'm going to give you a test right now, what kind of test do you think I would give you? And they said, uh, somebody was like, a Bible test, you know, because I'm the pastor, get it? And then there, another kid was like, math, because apparently he was in chapel, still worried about math, you know? Um, and so I said, it, well, they were in school, you know, it's understandable those would be the answers. And then I said, what if I said the test was, all of us are going to hike the Ice Age Trail. And like four kids were like, awesome! And I was like, how long do you think the Ice Age Trail is? He was like, 17 miles. I was like, it's 1,200 miles. And they were like, oh. Right? But it, if you can imagine, like if I said, okay, listen, this is what we're going to do this year. We're not going to do church for the other 265 days. But for 100 days, we as a church are going to—we're going to do the whole Ice Age Trail together. Okay? Now, see, we got one person. Great. So, now, if we did that, you could imagine that that would be kind of difficult. That would be a trial. It would be a test of our mettle. And like, what would you do with your job? And how would you do this? And where would we all go to the bathroom? And how would we get people who weren't particularly spry? And we, like, when we got done, um, it wouldn't just be whether or not we made it, right? When we finished, we would be a completely different group of people. We would have changed a lot. Some of us would have gotten leaner. You know, other of us would have gotten more muscular from like carrying out our older people on like those seats with poles, you know, and like we would have like cooked in very time-consuming ways with each other. We would have like had to deal with major conflicts and all that kind of stuff, but we would just be different. We'd be different individually. We'd be different as a group of people because trials do that to people. People have to go through stuff to change and to develop, and it's part of humanity, and it's Part of modernity is the denial of that. One of the things you need to realize is that we live in a time where people want to be able to take medicine or they want you to fix it for them or some technology or something ought to be able to make this better. And that's, that's just really a, a mistake. It's a misunderstanding of what human beings are, right? I was— one of my, one of my sons, I, well, I have one son who's 10, and he has a younger sister who's five, and he was, he was getting in a fight with her, and he was just treating her really bad. And I said, son, and I've had to talk to him about this before, I was like, you don't treat your sister like that. And you know what he said to me? He said, dad, I've already tried being nice to her. It doesn't work. So it was one a night, we were just sitting down to dinner, and like Lexi and the kids had just put the stuff on the table. And so I picked up his plate. We even had a guest, so it was more embarrassing. I picked up his plate, and I gave him three six-sided dice. And I said, okay, the number is eight. Here's a piece of paper and a pen. I want you to write down every mathematical way to roll those dice and get to the number eight. Addition, subtraction, algebra, power of two, 
anything. I want the maximum number of ways with those three dice in different numbers or the same numbers you could get to eight, right? And there's like, you know, it's like, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 170 ways to do it, you know? And I was like, and you're not having any dinner until you're done, right? And so he kind of moaned and complained and watched other people eat and thought I would give him his dinner if he like pushed it long enough. And so then I called Walt Pepler at, at Awana. I was like, Awana? I said, I, no, I didn't call him Awana. I don't normally do that. I said, Walt, my son's coming to Awana. He did not have any dinner. Do not give him any food at church. And Walt's like, okay. It's because, you know, they dish out candy and stuff, which is crazy, but anyway. So, um, so, so he goes to Awana, doesn't get any candy, comes home sitting at the table. I'm putting away all the food, right? And he's like, he's, you know, he's still kind of complaining about it. I was like, dude, do you think I'm just doing this to torture you? No, right? Do you think that that's all this is? No. I was like, why did I tell you to do this? He's like, dad, I can't come up with any more numbers. I was like, you've only got four. (laughs) I said, why did I make you do this? Right? And so his sister was walking around, his 13-year-old sister, and she was just like, she looked at that, and she heard them, she was like, oh! And then she, and then she had that like, oh, I, I get it. And so then Jude was like, oh, maybe there's an answer, you know? Like, I think there wasn't an answer until the sister understood. So he's thinking about it, and something happened. I think she said something that wasn't a giveaway, but it was sort of like a hint, and then he like realized it. He was like, oh, I get it. I was like, why did I make you do this? He's like, because there's more than two ways to talk to my sister. Yes. Yes. There's more than just nice and abuse. Okay, th- like what? And so like then I made him tell me like five or six different ways he could talk to his sister, right? And so the, the point is, is that was I punishing him for doing something wrong? Yes, I was. Was I enjoying his misery? A little bit. Okay, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, but the point was I wanted, I cr- wanted to create a trial through which he would learn something and be forged a little bit more into a person who really understood the way the world actually is. Okay? And in Luke's gospel, Luke is very—he's very adamant about this. He wants us to realize that Jesus is a real human being. Because we have a problem that it's so hard for us because we think of Jesus getting into the boxing match of life with a machine gun. You're like, of course you won. Oh, you, you managed to win the fight somehow. You know, like— He's—if he's the Son of God, of course he does humanity fine, right? And it's very difficult for us personally then to see him as our greater and older brother, as the Bible refers to him, or this this one who goes before us and lives humanity, humanity beautifully and perfectly in a way that we come after him and really can come after him because it feels like the whole thing is rigged. And, And Luke really tries to help us see that if you'd known Jesus, you wouldn't have really felt that way about him. There was something about his—the way his divinity interacted with his humanity that he was entirely and completely human, right? He had to be born, but he was born a special way. But he had to be a baby, and he had to nurse, and he had to grow up. And like, like even, even in the passage where his family goes back from Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple and is talking with the religious leaders, and they're all like, wow, this kid is really smart. And then his parents come, they're like, what are you doing in the temple? We're like back in Nazareth. He's like, and he says, didn't you know I'd be at my father's house? Like, you gotta wonder though, like, he was 12, you know? Maybe he like, in the divine person, he like really understood the spiritual stuff, but still didn't understand. You're supposed to tell your parents when you go somewhere in a city. 
right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of wandered off because he was 12. Like, I don't know, right? And then you get to the genealogy, which is like he came from all these people. And then he comes to the time of his ministry, and he gets baptized, and the Bible says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Why does, a, why does the divine God-man need, need the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's how human beings live out God's image, by receiving the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as a human being, he needed the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? And then he went out into the desert or the wilderness to be tried. Not just like a math test. Not just, oh, you got to pass this one. It's a formality. He had to go out in the desert to actually be tried because his humanity had to be forged. And that's really difficult for us because you're like, forged into what? Sinlessness? But there's a difference between sinlessness and maturity. And Jesus' humanity had to go through the process of maturity. And in that sense, he walked through things that you and I have to walk through as a human being, and his divinity didn't change the fact that he had to go through those things, like trials. Because human beings, they have to be forged. And even, even like agriculturally, when the seed of salvation is put in us miraculously, God still takes us through a process of formation. And we all have to grow up, and most of us have to grow around obstacles. And that's what gives plants kind of their tenor, you know? Their feel, their structure. Now, um, this passage is Luke's introduction of Jesus, right? Up until then, it's been Mary and Joseph and Anna and, you know, Zechariah and, you know, all these kinds of different things. And this is the first situation where Jesus enters into the story as the main character and then becomes the main character for the rest of the story. And he's introduced to us as this perfect Savior. But he's demonstrated to be our perfect Savior by being the perfect human believer at the same time. He's the divine God-man who is the perfect Savior, but he is shown to be our Savior by being the perfect human believer. Okay, now I'm going to go through just three parts of that quickly. One is Jesus is introduced as a perfect Savior. Two, he's shown to be the perfect believer. And then, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, that Jesus reveals what insight of faith makes him the perfect believer which is one that we can actually have too, that is not related directly to his divinity, that is available to every human person. Does that make sense? Okay, so first, Jesus introduces the perfect Savior. So if you read the—if we read the passage, this is pretty straightforward stuff, right? So Jesus was baptized and was praying, so he's in perfect relationship to God structurally. Heaven is opened. That doesn't happen for most people, Right? The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. A voice comes from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus is 30 years old, and he's the son of a whole bunch of people, but not least, Zerubbabel, David, Abraham, and Adam. Okay, so if we follow through here, he is, he is the perfect Savior structurally in terms of being related to God as, the, as God's servant, which is what he's referred to in most of the Old Testament. Heaven is opened. He receives the Spirit or the anointing of the Savior, right? In bodily form, in a very specific way. God calls him his son, says he loves him and he's well pleased with him, right? 
Jesus is 30 years old, which is, was, it was the age when priests began their ministry. So he's at this specific age where he's like released into this like adult ministry. And then Zerubbabel, so you've got Adam, Abraham, David, Zerubbabel, right? Now in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, the genealogies are completely different from David on. Okay, now I'm not going to get into exactly how to sort that out because it would take about 20 minutes or so. There's a, uh, there's a blog up on Engage and Equip blog with the three best ways to sort that out if you, if you want to read more about that. But it's not like they're the same, but there's a couple names off, like it's a mistake. They're completely different genealogies. Different numbers of generations, lots of differences, but the main difference is that this one goes all the way back to Adam. And Matthew's, because that gospel is written primarily to Jews, only goes back to Abraham. Because the point in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the rightful son of David the king and Abraham the promise. But in here, because Luke is writing to all of humanity, he's writing to Gentiles too, he's the son of Adam— that is, he's come to save all of humanity, not just the Jews. He's the son of Abraham. That is, he's the son of the great promise and the fulfiller of the great promise. He's the son of David. He's the true and rightful king. And he's the son of Zerubbabel. Now that, might, that one might be lost on you, but Zerubbabel was the first Davidic king in the restoration of Israel after the, after the Babylonian captivity. So they were captives in a country for 70 years. They came back to their country, and they had to rebuild it basically from nothing. He was the great rebuilder. And so Jesus is the son of Zerubbabel, the great restorer and rebuilder. Okay, he's the perfect savior. Now, that, that's usually the response to that is, that's fantastic. That doesn't do much for me, right? Philosophically, it's, it's, an, it's great to say, okay, so he's God enough to save me. So to the extent to which we feel the need of salvation, that's great. But in terms of identification or feeling like we can relate— Oftentimes, psychologically, it just kind of feels flat. Does that make sense? And people really struggle with that. And so, so Luke says, look, when he goes into the desert, he's revealed to be the perfect believer as, as a human being, too. Because when it comes to temptation, human beings tend to balk, or they tend to give in to the temptation when that temptation is directed at the most primal absolute visceral need. The more central, the more absolute the need, right? The more there, more people are kind of like, okay, look, I'm just going to do the thing, right? And so the first is food. Basic provision, right? Generally speaking, we tend to just naturally emotionally be lax with people if they did something wrong, but they like were, they, they, had, they suffered some kind of deprivation, right? If they, you know, if you don't have food, well, it's okay to steal it, right? Well, it's not actually okay to steal it. But we, it's more understandable when people steal it, right? And that's really the first temptation. Like, Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. That's kind of a while. He was a little bit hungry, and so the devil says, well, look, why don't you just turn one of those rocks into bread if you're the Son of God? And that makes decent sense because there's plenty of extra rocks in the Israeli desert, right? And if you turn one of them into a Cinnabon, that's not that big a deal, you know? And so— and he's not—it's not like Satan's like, hey, eat some of my bread, right? He's telling Jesus to make his own bread. But you see, the idea here is, is that God can give him bread when he's perfectly ready, and right now he's fasting, and he's going to finish what he's doing right now, right? And he says, listen, there's more to life than pleasing my stomach. Now, if, if you want to learn more about this, you should try fasting. It's a Christian spiritual discipline where you don't eat. 
Now, there's all kinds of ways to spiritualize it. Be like, you know, whenever you're hungry, you pray. And so you get to, and then you don't take the time to make meals and stuff. And you can do that to studying the Bible. All that's true. You can do all of that when you're fasting. Here's the main spiritual input from fasting. About three hours into it, you're going to start to get hungry. About five hours into it, you're going to get start to get a little ornery, right? And full hangriness is going to come on in a little while, and you're going to notice about 10 hours into it that you're just like, you're not feeling very spiritual, right? That's the point, okay? That's the whole point of fasting, right? The point of fasting is that's how addicted you are to fulfilling all of your bodily desires. You're incredibly addicted to fulfilling all of your bodily desires immediately, I'm a little cold. I'm going to turn the heat up. Like, we're actually at the point, like, you, you change the temperature on us three or four degrees, and just, we don't know what to do, you know? And fasting's kind of like, you can go days, weeks without food, right? But we're so focused on, like, even, even like you're eating, you're like, well, maybe I should read my Bible. I'm a little hungry. Maybe I should get some breakfast first. And like, well, I won't be able to concentrate until I get my coffee, and maybe I should go to the bathroom before I really sit down. You're like, just— Figure out what you're supposed to do and fit the food in when it fits in. Because otherwise what happens is all the bodily concerns, they just take over everything, and we're just so addicted to them. And Jesus is like, that is not going to control me, right? The same thing is true of power. It's easy to think of like, well, you know, power is this thing that people grasp at, and people want to be president and pop stars and have really nice abs. But like, that's really, that's really not— Power is a—, is a is a absolutely general thing. Power is the capacity to manipulate your world, to form it in a way that serves you rather than you being at its mercy. Okay, that's power. Power is anything you can do to do that. Having a key is power. You can open the door instead of not being able to open the door. You can keep some people out and let other people in. Right? There's all kinds of things. The ability to stand up is power. Just look at a, look at a kid that can't walk yet, right? Like his radius is limited, right? You can walk. That's power, right? There's all kinds of power. Everybody has power, and everybody seeks power, right? My five-year-old, when she was about two, she, like, was working on different screams that could get her brothers and sisters in more or less trouble if she screamed when her parents were in another room because she realized she physically couldn't fight any of her siblings, but there was something she could do to take power. Dishonesty is a great way to take power right? And so she was already learning that. It wasn't because she was like inherently more wicked than any other kid. It was just that she was in a disempowered position, and she decided to get power however she needed to, like every other human naturally does. And Jesus deserved to be in power. He deserved to be the king of the world. That was what he, he knew he deserved, and that was the authority he should wield. And the question is, are you willing to walk through all the things it will take to get there, or are you willing to just take it right now? Right? Protection is the same thing, right? How do you—God makes certain pledges about being on our side when we trust him and follow him, right? Makes certain pledges about where he's taking us and what he's doing and how he's doing it and in what ways, right? But Satan's temptation is a little bit like this. Let's see. How can you know? Right? If God is taking you through trials, which hurt, and then he's protecting you in other ways, how do you know it's just—that's not all just a big bunch of tomfoolery? I mean, how do you know that, like, he's really going to do it? Why don't we take a very stark promise? God says he tells the truth. In Psalm 91, he said, 91, it says that if you fall, he won't let you strike your foot against a stone. Okay? 
So here, just jump off a building. Let's just jump off a building, and let's see what happens, right? And the answer is, I don't want to jump off a building because I'm pretty sure I'm going to die, right? And then the answer to that is, of course, right, because you don't believe any of this nonsense anyway. So why do you pretend there's a God, and why do you pretend all that stuff, right? But you see, that's not Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is, no, no, that sounds good. I get how that sounds good. Here's what you don't understand. God withdraws when you treat him like he's not God. And so it seems like he's not there because he will not, he will not start a relationship with somebody where he's not who he is. And so here's the thing. God tries people. People don't try God. You cannot reverse that. It doesn't work. And so he quotes the passage. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Right? Now, you might, at the end of that, it's very possible that, like, that still doesn't do anything for you. Emotionally. Right? Jesus is very human. He's human in the sense, he's human, but he's so, he's so still, he's so the ideal believer that even at these, like, very visceral things, even, like, eating after 40 days, and a basic sense of protection, and a desire to take the power that he deserves, he will not take it for the wrong reason the wrong way. He will depend on God in each situation. Absolutely. Right? Now, I remember having these conversations. Like, I was in seminary talking with other seminarians, but I'm like, man, I still just don't feel like Jesus is human like me. Like, I don't—like, I get why Catholics and Orthodox people have so many saints— and they talk about the saints, and they even pray to saints. Because, like, I, I, I understand that sense of a gap, that, like, Jesus is up here, you know, and, like, like, maybe you can talk to Mary or somebody, and maybe that works. Like, like, I totally understand the psychology of that, because it's so difficult to, to connect with it. And even in some of these traditions, there's local saints. Like, it's like the saint from that area. My mom grew up in a town in Italy, and they literally had the saint's body in the church in a glass case. I mean, thankfully, nutrition was sufficiently poor that he was only about four feet tall, so it wasn't a very big glass case, you know? But they, like, would pick St. Clement up and take him through the streets every year, and everybody would wear a nice dress. Like, it was this big thing because he was their saint, right there in Montenero, you know? But one of the ways in which Luke tries to help us with that, which is a very normal feeling, is to say, no, you know what, actually? Jesus— so how, the question is, how was Jesus the ideal believer? Was he the ideal believer because he was God, and so he knew how to be the ideal believer, and he was powerful because he was God, and so he did it? And you see, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that there's—is saying, and how he does this, he's saying there's a way for you and I to have the mature, substantive, powerful, strong, reliable, faithful faith that he had in this situation, in the biggest things of our life, in basic provision, basic protection, and basic power, in all those things, you and I can have it just that way, and it can be through something powerful. And the question is, can it be something as powerful as joy? Right? And so here's the secret, and you're not going to like the secret, okay? But this is the secret. This is the thing that can make it so that your faith can be as powerful as Christ's faith. Do you understand? This is very significant, but you're not going to like it, okay? And that's just the way it is. But this is 
the thing. Okay, it's really not that profound. And that is, Jesus actually reveals that accepting trials is at the heart of perfect or mature substantive faith. I mean, let me try to argue this with you for just a minute, because I think it's absolutely central to everything we are as Christians, okay? So think about the temptations of Satan. In, in each case, he's saying, you don't have to wait and you don't have to suffer. Just take it now, right? You don't have to suffer the pain of hunger and the anguish of waiting. You can just make some bread now. You don't have to go through all the trials of teaching and, and changing and being hated and people hating you and going to a cross and being despised and being whipped and crucified. You can just, you can just take it now, right? You don't have to be humiliated. And you don't have to, you don't have to wonder about what's going to happen. Or you don't have to prove out how God will somehow protect you and vindicate you through all the trials and tragedies of your life. You can just test him now. You can just make God prove he's going to take care of you now. And then you'll, then you'll know, or you won't know. But why should you be tested? Why should you always have to put up or shut up? Why should it always be on your grit or your power or your strength or your life or your pain? Why don't you test God? Test him. Maybe it's his turn. He's been testing people for thousands of years. Why don't you test him? Just take it now, right? In each case, it's like, just take what you want. Just take it. And in each case, Jesus says, no. It's my job to go through it. You see, because for whatever, whatever the presence of Christ's divinity, Jesus was a thousand percent committed. I know that's mathematically impossible. It's for emphasis, okay? He was very committed to the true humanity he was commanded to walk out. He would be true man. Every bit. And so he had to go through things because that's the only way human beings go through things. And listen, if Jesus, who is a pretty ideal human being, had to go through trial to become himself, what are the chances that you're going to get out of it? I'm going to argue low. It's the less than sign, right? It's going to be low. So how does he do it then? Because that'll be relevant, right? Now, most of the teachings I've heard on this um, teach something that's true, but I don't think it's quite enough. So I've heard a number of teachings that they say, you know, when Jesus faced temptation, and usually these are sermons on temptation. They're not on this passage, so they don't go deeper. But they go, when Jesus was tempted, what does he do? He quotes the Bible, okay? He quotes the Word of God, right? Which everybody has. You have it. He had it. He quotes the Word of God. At temptation, he says, this is true. Now, that's perfectly right, because every temptation has built into it a deception, Right? That's, that's, that's part and parcel, right? The deceiver from Adam and Eve all the way to the present, every temptation has built in it some thinking problem that is deceptive. Right? So, right? Let's jump off the, the roof and God will keep you from hitting your foot against the stone. That's, that seems right, doesn't it? Like, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Maybe he's trying to keep the knowledge for himself. Maybe God is doing this. How do you, how can you really know he's good, right? And you see Jesus goes, nope. Here's the truth that I know is contrary to that. And so I know that that's a deception. And so I know it's a temptation and I'm not going for it, okay? 
but, but, but what's the deception, right? Like the human heart longs to know what the, what's going on, right? And so whenever, whenever this, you see this in the Bible where, especially when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, in many cases when the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible is quoted in the New Testament, the Old Testament quotation is the key to understanding what's happening. All right, and so in this case, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes three, three verses, right? How, okay, so this is participatory. How many different books in these three quotations does Jesus quote from? How many different books? One. They're all from Deuteronomy, right? If you spread out all the chapters he quotes from, from the beginning, and you count all the way through to the end of the last chapter he quotes from, how many total chapters does he cover in those three quotations? Three, three right. Because he has two quotations from chapter 6 and one from chapter 8. It's three chapters, okay? Now listen, you got to understand, this is from a time before pop culture, okay? There were no pop stars. So like when people quoted from things like the Bible, in like the land of the Bible, people immediately knew what that whole passage was about, right? He's quoting from, from, um, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one of the most known passages in the whole Bible to Jews, right? Like, they actually put some of the verses of that chapter, like, in phylacteries and stuff, and put it on their houses. Hear, O Lord, right? The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how that chapter 6 starts, right? And so it gets to a point where it says both of those verses right next to each other, right? Where it says, listen, um, fear the Lord your God and serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. You're not supposed to have other gods, so you can't worship Satan to get the world, right? And then the second one is just like two verses later, where he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa, which is when, like, because they had a history of testing God, and things didn't go well. They went very poorly, right? Now, sometimes when you hear about Jesus in the desert for 40 days, people will say, listen, the emphasis here is on Jesus being the second Moses, Right? Moses was the first savior of the people of God. He created the covenant. He did all those things, and he was in the desert for 40 years, you know, being trained to be God's leader, and then he did all these things. And so this is Luke's way of saying that Jesus is the second Moses, right? Now, Jesus is the second Moses, and this passage may allude to Jesus being the second Moses, but when Jesus explicitly quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, He's explicitly claiming that he is second to Israel. That is, Israel were supposed to be God's good, real believers in the earth. He gave them Deuteronomy to tell them how to do it, how to trust him, and they didn't. Right? And so if you look at chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 8, you can see Jesus was led by the Spirit for 40 days. God led them through the desert for 40 years. He was led into the desert. They were led through the desert. He was made hungry by fasting. They were made hungry by isolation in the desert. He was tempted to make food. They were tempted by their lack of food. Jesus is tempted by Satan. God tests the people. Jesus knows man does not live by blood alone. He was teaching them that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus received the power of the Spirit. They received manna to eat, right? So this is the critical passage. Remember, so this is God through Moses telling his people how they need to believe, the attitude they need to have when they go towards the promised land. Because, one more caveat before I read that. Before I read that. You see, in chapter 6, right, he said the things I've just said. Do you know what chapter 7 in Deuteronomy is about? Chapter 7 in Deuteronomy is about taking the land from the seven nations of the Canaanites. And God says, listen, 
you're going to go into Canaan, and you're going to have to fight the Canaanites for that land. And every single tribe of the Canaanites individually is larger than your tribe. I didn't pick you because you were big. And I didn't even pick you because you were good. I picked you because I picked you. I loved you and promised to save you. And you're going to ask yourself, then how is it possible that we as a small group of people can fight seven different nations, all larger than us? How is it possible that we could actually face them? And the answer is, you came out of Egypt. The greatest power is not any of the Canaanites. It was the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the most powerful civilization on the planet. And they were crushed under the weight of the power of God when you were in slavery so that you could be made free. And if I can, if I can free you from the Egyptians, I can defeat the Canaanites. Do you see, do you see the implicit point there? How do they learn they can beat the Canaanites? Through the actual crucible-like trial of the Exodus itself. Not by being taught a lesson in words, but through the experience of it. And now they're in the desert experiencing something so that they will be ready to go and take the land. And God explicitly says, I'm not going to drive them all out at once. I'm going to drive them out a ways, and then you're going to come in and settle it. And then I'm going to drive them out more, and then you're going to settle it. Because if I just wipe them all out all at once, all we would get is weeds and wild animals. Like you can't—you have to come in. It takes time to settle a land that you conquer. Otherwise, you just destroy the land, right? Now, now think about that, right? You want God to do something miraculous or something big kind of in your life. You want something to move forward, something to push out, something to, something to happen, right? But here's—I think that this principle is transferable. It's spiritualizable. God supernaturally will push something forward, but then you have to come in behind that and settle it. Do you understand? Otherwise, if God, God could do all kinds of miraculous things in your life, and it would just destroy you. Like, I, I know people who have been physically, divinely healed that have completely left the faith and walked away from Jesus. I mean of, like, cancer that was going to kill them and debilitating physical things where they, like, got up out of beds and, like, they were better. They were better. And they used their health to take because they were angry they had to go through trials. And it destroyed them. God— God took a country for them, and instead of settling it with the development of character and the growth of sanctification and the moral formation stuff that solidifies that gain, they let that open space destroy them. And so you see, the Israelites had to learn through this trial in the Exodus. And then they had to go through the Red Sea, and they had to go into the desert, and they had to be tried in the desert, and then they had to fight their way into the Promised Land because they had to become a certain kind of people. A certain kind of people that if you blessed them, it wouldn't destroy them. And historically speaking, they still couldn't cope with success after all of that. Because it is extraordinarily difficult to get a human being's attention. Human beings are not—it's not hard for us to learn things. We're really good at learning things. Really good. We're incredibly good creatures at learning things. It is almost impossible to get our attention. And so that—I think that's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Because for most of us, 
for us to, to even pay attention at all, we have to be so painfully crushed that it's sad. And yet, that's, that's normal. It normally takes the desert for us to think about our bread. And so in Deuteronomy, it says, he says, remember that God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then— Okay, so this is the point. This is the point he wants you to take. Know this. Know then that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. As the Lord disciplines his son, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. That what you need to understand about the desert and about pain and about difficulty and about trials is that they have a purpose and a reason and God is doing something and you're going to be tempted to take. You're going to be tempted to short-circuit the process. You're going to be tempted to get out of it in any way you can. You don't want to walk through it. Who wants to walk through trials? And trials generally have shortcuts out. They don't have shortcuts to where the trial is leading. There's no shortcut to the end. But there are shortcuts out. And most of us, because we want our provision, we want our power, we want our protection, we just want out of the trial in any way possible. God is—God doesn't care about that. What God wants is the end that he's trying to produce as a father disciplining his child. This trial is meant to produce this. This insight that you will not learn any other way. And I'm sorry you won't learn it any other way, but this is what you have to see. This is who you have to become. This is where you have to go. And so you have to be the kind of person that doesn't take— the way out. You have to be the kind of person that through faith and trusting that God is the one who tries and that we are not the ones who try God, that we wait for the thing that he will give us. And it takes humility. I, I want to just point out one thing in this passage that um, I think is, it's important and it's easy to, to read over, right? He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then he fed you with bread. Right? But that's actually not what it says, is it? He says, he fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Um, it says in, in Exodus that, that manna was this bread that was— the color, a whitish color like coriander seed, but it was like wafers with honey, okay? Now, and this is before, this is before the cultivation of honey, okay? So like everybody believed honey was like of the gods and like because it was so yummy and because it was protected by bees. Like that kind of makes sense. That would be the food of the gods, right? And so like you, you couldn't really get any. Like you had to fight bees, wild bees, when you wanted honey. Like you just didn't get access to this stuff, you know? And like God, what God gave them was not like, was not bread, what he gave them was like miraculous Stroopwafel, caramel wafered candy Cinnabon food in the desert. I mean, I think about that for a minute. And nobody had ever eaten this stuff. He's like, your, your fathers never ate this stuff. Nobody ever ate this stuff. 
And it just, it was just there in the desert. I gave it to you in the midst of it. You ate manna. Don't you get it? You left the land of slavery into the desert, which was worse, except I gave you manna when you were hungry. You see, if you go into the desert and you can turn a rock into bread, that's still inferior. And it's still wrong. Whenever you know you're under a trial to go a certain place and you take the out, it's always taking a temptation. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus, come hell or high water, Jesus was going to get God's manna for him. He was going to get the better thing. He was going to get the thing he went into the desert to do. Because listen, you can go to the desert for 40 days and you can give up the last day and you can end up with nothing. And then you get to take that test again, as they say in the South. Right? Jesus was willing to wait to see what God's manna would be. And what was it? Right? You see, in the first part of chapter 4, it says that Jesus was baptized— the Holy Spirit descended on him. And then in chapter 4, it says, He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit. But you know what it says when he comes out of the wilderness? It says in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's the first time in Luke's gospel that he refers to the power of the Spirit or the power of God in, in Jesus. He came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. I think about that. And then all of a sudden, miracles. Blind people can see. Lame people can walk. People who are dying can live. He raises some people from the dead. He teaches amazing stuff. He walks through things that you can't even imagine. He makes fish fill nets till they tear. He does incredible things in the power of the Spirit. I mean, imagine if he would have just traded that for some rock bread. Can you imagine? It, it sounds so good when you haven't eaten for 40 days, okay? A little bread sounds really good, okay? If your spouse has been ter terrible to you for two decades, a little divorce sounds really good. When you've been sick, right? Like acting out in all kinds of ways because you deserve it because you've been sick sounds really good. Just doing it your own way, not paying attention to God because God hasn't been good to you, that sounds really good. Man, you've tested him, and you found him wanting. He hasn't been faithful. Your kids are being terrible, so why can't you be a little terrible to your wife? Or just come home later, let her deal with it, or something. Like all that stuff, all those things, all the shortcuts, all, all the takes, they sound really good. And it's just, it's just fake bread. It's just grabbing power. It's just testing the God who can't be tested. It's all deception. It's all deception. It's fog. It's smoke and mirrors. It's soul-crushing nonsense. If you want to have, you can have the kind of faith the man Jesus had, independent of his deity. You can have that kind of faith. You can have the kind of faith that can be starving and say, I won't make bread. I will wait for the bread God gives me. You can, you can be offered the world and say, I would rather have whatever God has for me. Whatever it is, I would rather have that. 
And you can feel like you have no protection, nothing keeping you safe. And you can feel like you want to test God and say, aren't you going to keep me safe? You need to prove yourself and be tempted to tell God to prove himself. And you can say, God tests me. I don't test him. And he will show himself faithful if I trust him in his trial of me. And what will happen is you will come out of the desert in the power of the Spirit. You will come out of the desert having eaten manna. You will find in that kind of faith, you will find in the midst of all your trials that there is a sweetness in the food of soul that God gives you in your endurance, and you will see the transformation of your heart and mind and soul. You will become a completely different sort of person, and you will never be willing to trade any of what you suffered for what it has made you, because it is true. You see, sometimes people say about their sins, well, I don't regret anything because here I am, and I like my life now, and you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't go back and change it. That's Christianly speaking, that's poppycock. Okay? If you could go back and change your sins, you should go, all right? Like, get in the time machine or whatever, and go back and change the cosmic offenses and treasons against God. That would be great, okay? But not your pain. You see, most of us, like, if we could go back in time, we would go back and change our pain. We'd leave the sins. We don't got time for that. But go back and change the pain. You should do exactly the opposite. If you could go back in time, go back in time and take back that terrible word. Go back in time and live chastely in that season of your life. Go back in time and be generous when you were stingy. Go back in time and change the sin, but leave the pain. The pain, but only the pain that was combined with faith, because you might not have gotten anything for the other pain. The only thing you can do with pain is not waste it. That's it. Either it forges you or it breaks you. And if you shatter because you're brittle of heart, because you have no faith in the one that tests, then you'll just be shards. So you'll just be broken. But if you trust the one who tries you, you'll be forged into something stronger than you ever thought you could be. And when you come out the other side of it, you would, even if the other side of it isn't till heaven, you'll look back and you'll say, I would not change that. I ate the manna in the desert. And I tasted walking in the power of the Spirit. And nothing is worth trading that. I'll live in the desert a thousand years on those terms than to live in luxury one day. God, we pray that you'd help us in this way to live all for joy. We pray that like Jesus, the divine God-man, that we would be a people who don't just quote the Bible at our temptations, though we will. And we would let your truth cut through deception. But in addition to that, help us to see that the way Jesus believed was, was the everyman way, was the simplest, most down-to-earth way. He had perfect faith by identifying with us. He identified with the human Israelites. He identified with the trials that God gave and the forging that he did in them, but he didn't waste it. And God, would you make us a people who, who don't take our way out of trials, but who come to you the perfect Savior, knowing that you were perfect humanity in the perfectly human way, and that we can identify with you completely, 
though we can rest in the saving power of your divinity. Show yourself to us. Show yourself in our hearts and in our apprehension of you, your perfections in ways that increase our joy and strengthen our hearts and open our minds. We pray in Jesus' name.